With the news media covering increasingly more news about data breaches and security and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor, we are here to help you mitigate potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello, and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the 70th episode of my show. You know, I did this show to help raise awareness of information security and privacy risks and issues, and I'm also doing it to provide worldwide listeners with practical tips and actions to help improve information security and also to help everyone better protect their privacy. Please subscribe to my show on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Player FM, Google Play, and any other of your favorite podcast or news apps. And please subscribe to my show on the Voice America Business Channel website. Then you'll be notified just as soon as each new show is available. Thank you to all my listeners throughout the world in all the 63 countries now that I know I have listeners in. I truly appreciate all of you. And if any of you listening are interested in sponsoring one of my shows each month, perhaps on a specific privacy, information, security, IT, or compliance topic, then get in touch and keep all your feedback and questions coming in. I love getting them. My December Privacy Professor Tips message was published at the end of November. Did you get yours? Well, if not, please sign up for them. I've provided these for free since 2007, and I've been doing it in an effort to increase general awareness of information security and privacy issues, and also to provide a free awareness publication for organizations to send on to their employees. And I'm so happy to know that there's over 3,000 organizations out there who are doing this. Um, I know that budgets are tight, so this really does help to keep employees as well as the general public up to date and aware of things. Now you can sign up for them by going to privacyguidance.com and submitting your email in the box in the upper right part of your screen. Now for my tip for this month, and some of you might find this month's tip somewhat morbid, but Every person who has some type of social media presence, even just one account, and maybe even an account that you haven't used in years, you still need to think about this. You need to prepare for what happens to your social media accounts and all the other associated information within them after you die. In the past month, I've received reminders about birthdays and friendversaries about two of my relatives 
who've died in the past few years, and also from five of my deceased friends. Now, not only was it sad to me to relive their deaths with these really quite jolting reminders, but it was also sad to me when I went to their accounts and I saw this huge amount of photos and videos and posts and comments that they've made and and all of this other information. And it concerned me because so much of it was publicly available. And I worried about who else is accessing all this information of people who I've known who have died and who's using their information, perhaps for social engineering, perhaps by pretending to be the deceased. Uh, This is a growing tactic by cyber crooks and for other types of activities that would be hurtful, of course, to their surviving family members. Um, And so it's something that you really need to think about, especially if that information could harm how they would be remembered in some ways. The big social media sites and most other social media sites, they actually keep accounts active long after a user has died. And in fact, I know Twitter, the last time I checked, stated that they do not give access to a deceased user's account regardless of the relationship unless they follow had followed the specific procedures. And, you know, social media sites, other types of social media sites also have similar policies. So here's my tip. If you've used social media, if you do not want to have all of those posts you've made over the past many years and how many of you actually delete all of your past posts, you know, I try to do that. I need to go back there and do it again for the past, oh, seven or eight months. But you need to know that all of that information is going to persist once you've died. And here's what I, I give as my tip. Put within your will a way to get your social media passwords. Maybe you put the passwords in the will itself or maybe you have it locked in your safe, your bank deposit box or whatever. But in your will, give access to someone you trust with those passwords and then ask the person who you've given this access to to go ahead and get in, log in with your password and ID and close down your accounts. If a trusted friend or family member takes action on your behalf using your ID and password, then it's going to be much more likely that they're going to completely remove everything from your accounts and close your accounts than if you leave it to the social media sites to follow their own procedures for the site members. So do similar for your computing devices as well. You know, know what know what is going to happen to all that data you have on your laptops and your your desktops also. So on to our topic today. I've mentioned before that I started my IT career as a systems engineer at a really large multinational corporation. So I was responsible for building and maintaining the change control system for a really complex environment that contained all the software and applications that the corporation used. Now, this change control system required new and changed software coding and testing to be performed initially 
in a completely separate development region of the what was initially the IBM 370 mainframe being used when I started, and then my system was ported to the IBM 390 system. Now, after the coding was completed by the programmers and initial programming team testing was done, then the applications were moved using my change control system to another separate beta or pilot region. And here it received even more rigorous testing by a separate testing team that included not only the IT staff, but also key stakeholder members of the business or corporate units where the applications were actually used. Now the business or the beta pilot region replicated the production environment, but the act, Actions actually performed there would not impact the live business production activities. So impacts within the full environment could be found during this testing in the beta pilot region. In the past month, I've ran across yet again another person who simply does not think that having separate test regions and pilot regions or even doing change control processes is necessary. I ran across a CEO of a cloud services business, and it's actually a business that provides compliance and information security services, no less. And he really just shrugged off the problems that he was having with his ongoing issues with his cloud services site. Now, I know that he does not have a separate test or development region or server for his business. And when I spent time explaining what I thought was very clearly, while he why he was continuing to have security incidents and privacy breaches, he just dismissed the issues and he just said, well, you know, that's just the way it is with a cloud service. Every cloud service has these problems. So, you know, it we don't need to worry about having a separate test region. That's just what a cloud service does. So he's continuing on with this very risky practice, stating it's just part of running a cloud services business and does not see the need to spend any money on fixing what I see and I think what many other people would see as a huge vulnerability, not only to his own business, but to his clients using his services. It really seems like this willful neglect with his continued bad change control practices uh, are going to continue to cause more problems on an ongoing basis. Now, if you're a regular listener of my show, you know I've been really worried to see organizations that do not use change controls and who are making changes to their applications directly within the production environment, especially cloud services businesses with complex and multiple services offerings. So today is the next in a series of shows that I've been doing on systems and applications change control management to discuss why this is a vital and necessary part of any software solution, and in many ways more important now than it was on those IBM 370 and 390 mainframes that I worked on so long ago. 
Today, I am thrilled to discuss the importance of change controls to supporting information security and privacy with an expert in this area who has deep and wide knowledge and experience, not only for this topic, but all other information security and privacy topics. Today, I am speaking with Becky Swain, who is currently the Director of Standards Development at High Trust and is primarily responsible for leading the High Trust Shared Responsibility Program. Now, in her career, Becky has been recognized as a governance, risk, and compliance. A lot of you have heard this term referenced as GRC subject matter expert, and she has 20 years of professional experience in the information security and data privacy compliance fields, both as an external auditor and technology sector practitioner. As a leading security industry standards contributor, Becky also founded the Compliance or the Cloud Security Alliance, CSA, Cloud Controls Matrix, CCM, and Becky was project co-editor for ISO IEC 27036 and a founding certification committee member and exam writer for the ISC Squared Certified Cloud Security Professional, or CCSP. Becky, thank you so much for being my guest today. Welcome to my show. Thank you, Rebecca. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, as you can probably tell by my intro... I am concerned about this topic, <laughs> and um, and I know you're concerned about it, too. And I'm wondering if maybe you can explain from your perspective for the non-IT listener, you know, why should our folks who's listening who, who don't do programming, why should they care about whether or not the cloud services that they're using follow strong and effective software change controls? Well, I like to view it kind of both from a, a professional but also just personal standpoint. Um, so for me personally, it, um, it, it's really where change control might hit home um, on disrupting my lifestyle, my livelihood, things of that nature, right, which matter. And uh, if we just take the recent um, – PG&E had a statewide set of outages um, – uh, power outages scheduled in, in response to trying to mitigate a risk around fire dangers given the current weather patterns in California. Mm-hmm. Um, we had somewhat of a heads up. Uh, personally, I, my, my town or my part of the town was not affected, thankfully. However, many of my friends and family were affected. And what, what they did not do um, adequately from a change quote-unquote-control perspective was give enough awareness and preparedness for those to not just understand what how they need to respond to it, mm-hmm. but when it came time to actually find out which area was affected, their web servers went down. So they didn't adequately prepare <laughs> for the volume needed um, to, for people to actually know which area was going to be affected. So they had a website that you could plug in your zip code or your address, and unfortunately, it was down. So that's just an example where a pretty significant change that was implemented had 
statewide impact, and people were frustrated because at the end of the day, what they did not do well was manage expectations. And so change control is all about that. It's all about managing expectations. Um, It's about ensuring that you've got um, the clear accountability, transparency, and and traceability of what what change might have affected um, anyone impacted by it, right? Yeah. The other example, right? Yeah, (laughs) well, you know, just really quickly for our (laughs) listeners who might be outside of the U.S., so PG&E, they provide all of the electricity services throughout California, right? Um, That's correct. Yeah, so for those listening, that's what we're talking about, electricity, the power. And talking about um, the impact, I think I read where even there was a death that resulted from a man who lost power because, like you said, he didn't know or somebody didn't let him know that the power was going down and was it his ventilator he he was on uh, that he needed to sustain life that, you know, when the power went off? Yeah. So, I mean, that's right. It, <laughs> that it's it's so important. It can it can literally have deadly uh, consequences. Well, exactly. And the other example um, that kind of hits home personally is um, think about communications, emergency communications, and and Rebecca, wouldn't you say that email has become one of our kind of fundamental? kind of lifeline to communicate, um, even in an emergency scenario, as well as text Mm -hmm. messaging, right? Yes. When those go down in the event of an emergency, it's highly problematic. Well, we we had an incident, if we're going to go back into the more technology sector realm, Google Mm -hmm. reported an outage back in June, which took down uh, the Gmail service. Imagine an active shooter scenario and, and what obviously as a parent is quite disconcerting that our children now have to go through these active shooter training um, scenarios at their schools, right? Imagine mm-hmm. if there was an active shooter incident and email was the primary mechanism by which the school needed to communicate to the parents of the incident and it went down. You can't even start to even imagine kind of how worrying and disruptive and, and concerning that can be. Mm-hmm. As you said, right, these are about life-threatening scenarios where a lot of our, our technologies, our infrastructure are all dependent upon these things that without appropriate change control, things fall apart. It, it's a very bad scenario. And so this is just reinforcing the notion that, yes, you need to have these good practices so that at the end of the day, you are appropriately managing the expectations of those that are impacted by these changes. So when did you start working with change controls? Because I know you've been working with with them for a long time. So is this something that you've pretty much done from the beginning of your career as well? Or did a a certain incident get you involved with those? Sure. So I like you, you know, my, my, um, Technology career kind of started up and started back when, you know, doing primary IT administration and whatnot. And, and while I, I had to be cognizant of what changes I was responsible for in that role of building application or building um, 
network boxes or communications and whatnot and supporting IT with an organization, it wasn't really clear to me how important or, or how um, potential impacts of, of those changes. It wasn't until mm-hmm. I actually transitioned into being an external auditor working for the big four, and one of my primary clients was one of the, the primary global um, car processing companies, uh, organizations. And it's where my, you know, really my, my passion around controls um, really emerged and, and grew. And, that, and, and that's where I, I started to understand when you end up seeing how controls that are well-designed or not well-designed, <laughs> and mm-hmm. in particular change control, you start to see what the impact is. Um, as an auditor, you're, you're going to find potentially audit findings um, where controls didn't break down. And, and it was amazing to me to see that change control was one of the more problematic areas. Mm-hmm. It's problematic and it's still so rarely uh, uh, given the focus it needs, I think. And especially throughout all parts of your your digital environment, right? So, so what right. kind of what would you explain to our listeners? What kind of IT components do change control management processes need to be applied within cloud service services environments? Is our focus for now? Because so many people either have a cloud service or they use cloud services, and I think a lot of times people don't realize all the different uh, components that actually should be applied to. Well, it's interesting because I, I, I default to, you know, option D, all of the above. Um, because yes. in reality, yeah. um, right, the, mm-hmm. the, the cloud is really a very delicate ecosystem, right? Um, mm-hmm. From the application down to the physical layer of the stack and anything that plugs into it. And in today's world, right, You've got your APIs. You've got your relying third parties that use these services. You've got customers that, that um, engage with these services, you know, just on a day-to-day, whether that's from a business or personal perspective. So at the end of the day, it, it could have a pervasive impact, and that's why that traceability, that visibility into the environment becomes so critical. Yeah, I mean it's it's goes so far beyond just even the the applications code that we've talked about, but so many and maybe you've had similar experiences throughout your many audits you've done, but like even changing out hardware or changing uh, systems configurations or even applying patches. I mean, have you seen a lot of holes in cloud services businesses where? Maybe they just don't even think about that, and they just kind of slap the changes in there without realizing what could happen as a result. Yeah, I, I have seen it, and and unfortunately, you know, change control is one of those uh, interesting uh, paradigms in in mm-hmm. information security where <laughs> there is uh, there are those that say it's like a no brainer, right? You do it, you do it right, like. It's an obvious thing. Why wouldn't you do it? And then there are those that have this intrinsic belief that the likelihood of something bad happening is so low that why put all the effort into doing it, right? Because it, it does it does come at a cost, right? There is still sure. an investment in having 
protocols and processes, and it introduces overhead. And in today's world, right, it's all about, you know, the speed to market, right? It's how Mm -hmm. can you get something out? You know, this whole agile development methodology that, that says, hey, the sooner you get something to market, the sooner you make money from it, or the sooner you get an investor to buy into it, right? And mm-hmm. getting that traction and usability, all good stuff, right, from a business perspective. The problem is when something bad does happen, it can mm-hmm. have an impact that could potentially even put a business, a company out of business, right? And they just don't foresee that potential impact, Um as being a likelihood, right? And that just goes back to the risk, right? You're not really mm-hmm. looking at your environment from a, a risk lens. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And I'm glad you brought up and use the term agile, you know, the agile programming, because a lot of my clients are startups and very small organizations. And when I, you know, when I ask them about having a separate change, a, a separate a test area or a pilot area, a lot of times they'll say, oh, well, we don't have that because we do agile programming and that means we don't have to have a separate area. And I, I usually have to say, well, that's not really what agile programming means. But I think there's, to your previous point, I think that's a misconception. So many organizations think um, is just part of agile programming. The fact, you know, they, they think you don't have to do change control if you're doing agile programming. I don't think they realize what agile programming really means. Yeah, I would agree with you, actually. And, and, and it, it, there's, a, <clears throat> there's a real opportunity with, with some of the newer uh, innovative technologies that come out of cloud, right? There's this, mm-hmm. this thing called continuous integration, continuous development, CICD, right? Mm-hmm. Where... If well designed and implemented, a lot of what is um, less incentivizing for uh, um, for to put implement these these manual processes, right? The, the overhead of change control. If you design these things right, you let the technology do the checking for you. Get the people mm-hmm. out of the mix. At the end of the day, right? Human error is our biggest security risk right? And forever will be. But if you've designed a system that essentially automates that change control process, such that you still preserve all the level of transparency, accountability, and traceability, and the right, you know, approvals and things of that nature, if those checkpoints are put in and you automate these things, then it turns Mm -hmm. out it fits very nicely in an agile model. Right. And, and yes. it's all about, again, even with agile, right, that project management overhead is critical for a successful agile development methodology, right, to, to, to really deploy, deploy these um, applications in a manner that, that, that meets the schedule requirements, meets their customer requirements, et cetera, right? Yes, yes, most definitely. And we're coming right up here right now to our break. So let's take a pause here and we'll come back and continue our conversation. Now it's time for a quick break to hear from our sponsors. I'm speaking today with Becky Swain about change control management in cloud services. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the privacy professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about this show, as well as provide show topic suggestions using my email, RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com, and also through my privacyguidance.com website. 
Please stay with us. We'll be right back after these important messages from my sponsors. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy, and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyprofessor.org. Rebecca Harold and Associates offers information security products, privacy, and compliance tools, education, and consulting. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages. She has published since 2007. Visit privacyprofessor.org for help and answers to your questions. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on the Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, and I'm speaking today with Becky Swain about change control management in cloud services. So I want to pick up um, now, Becky, with some of the common opinions or perspectives of uh, those who own and manage cloud services. So I've had business owners of cloud services and software packages too. Basically, they tell me that they do not need change control management processes because they make frequent backups. So if anything goes wrong, they'll just restore a system and uh, then, you know, then there's no harm done because they've got everything back to where it was before they made that that change to the production codes. I mean, I've had many software development firms tell me this. It really concerns me. What would you say to to business owners like this uh, if they made this claim to you? So it's actually kind of funny because in my career, um, whether you know, either as an auditor or one who is um, the, on the practitioner side of things, um, one, one thing has I've noticed and observed as it pertains to backups is um, a little saying that, that I, I'm sure others are familiar with, with the, the minute you assume yes, you should assume no. And what I mean by that, right? And yeah. what I mean by that is the way you design a backup um, or, or how you configure your backups may or may not be a true replication of the environment or even external environment impacted by a change. Mm-hmm. So if we go back to what I, I early, my earlier comment around, you know, cloud in particular is a very delicate ecosystem, right, from, from the bottom to the top of that stack and everything that slugs into that stack, Right. Mm-hmm. Um, are you really 
making a backup or a snapshot of all those these intricate things that are interconnected, in all likelihood, the answer is no. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to assume that your environment is, is a true, there's a true replica of that environment and the impact associated with that change, it's kind of a misconception, right? And you're, not, you're probably not adequately prepared in the event that something goes awry after that change has been implemented. I love that point because I think too many people, especially if uh, they're the owners of the businesses and maybe they're a few, you know, a few steps away from the actual technology itself and how it works. I think a lot of times everybody thinks, oh, well, a backup is is actually making a backup of everything. But could you imagine if it was actually, if all backups did a backup of everything, how long that would typically take for each backup to occur instead of, you know, the typical integral uh, interval backups that are what you want to do. Yeah, you you definitely need to do intervals. Well, you could almost visualize it as a, as a stack set of puzzles, right? Mm-hmm. And each puzzle piece might represent a backup. Mm-hmm. But a change that may have been affected by other changes that have happened over time may mm-hmm. not be adequately represented. So the minute something bad happens, how do you re-piece together all of the puzzle pieces and stack them accordingly? Yes. Yeah, that's a great way to describe it. It's almost like uh, if you're cooking, too, and you put too much of something in a recipe in the pot, you know, what are you going to do? Try to to take out the salt to make it go back to where it was? I mean, it's just you're never going to get back to where you were a few minutes ago. So um, definitely. So what are some of the biggest vulnerabilities that you've seen with cloud services um, and maybe some real-life incidents uh, related to their change controls? So it's hard to say what is the worst vulnerability, but I think if we take it to um, the real-world scenario and we look at the Equifax breach, right? Mm. So it was determined that the, the cause of the breach was due to um, Equifax not uh, applying a patch in this case, it was an Apache Struts vulnerability that was uh, exploited. Mm-hmm. Now, what happened was there was a window by which the, the vulnerability had been reported. Um, I believe the time frame was around March of 2017. Um, and and you know, the trick with, with vulnerability management is how do you time these, these things in such, such that when you patch that that exploit window um, mm-hmm. is small. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the, uh, you know, dealing with the kind of a zero-day exploit scenario, which is the worst case, right? Not always the case. Those are more of an edge case than the general case. But if we just look at the general case, right, mm-hmm. um, if you're not checking for these vulnerabilities continuously um, with a plan to patch, Right at whatever mm-hmm. frequency meets your business obligations, um, 
and will vary on a company-to-company basis, right? There is no set rule. Then um, the fact that you're not catching these things is indicative of something else going on. Mm. And the, the something else I'm talking about really, really is about how you manage your change control process such that you're, you're doing that vulnerability assessment as part of that continuous change um, set of processes, right? Mm-hmm. And, and unless you've embedded that into your development cycle, in all likelihood, you're going to be subject to these kinds of issues because you're not catching these things soon enough to know that they're there. Again, transparency, accountability, traceability, right? Mm-hmm. You're not catching them as these things happen so that you don't therefore have a plan, a plan to address them. In such mm-hmm. a timely fashion, and this is exactly what happened with Equifax, because they did not patch that vulnerability, mm-hmm. um, it was reported that they uh, may have had uh, been attacked and penetrated in the, I think they said in like the June-ish time frame, um, mm-hmm. I believe it was the fall that they uh, realized um, over that, over what, two or some months. Um, mm-hmm that their systems had actually been penetrated. Yes. You know, and what I've heard from so many organizations, and let me know if maybe you've heard from other organizations the same attitude or opinion, but I hear so many organizations, especially the small to mid-sized ones, for like those types of vulnerabilities that need to be patched. Um they're like, oh, well, what's the, what's the probability that somebody's going to actually, um, you know, exploit that? We, why would we be the target for anyone? And I think, you know, that's another problem with maybe outside of, of change controls, but it's kind of related because, like you said, if you aren't following proper change controls and you just start assuming people aren't going to uh, – address or patch those vulnerabilities, then you really, your, your risks just snowball up. Uh, you're soon going to have so many risks out there that it's going to be hard to tell where all of the, the problems are coming from. I, I agree. Um, you know, so you don't know what you don't know, right? Mm-hmm. And unless you're actually um, looking for these things, right, and you're looking for the holes that may or may not exist, how do you know what you do with them, right? And so you go back to this question around probability. That is, again, right, unless you're thinking about probability or impact, you're not taking, looking at the view of of how you implement these things from a risk lens. Um, And it's that absence of thinking about those things, assuming, right, assume yes, assume no, that it's all going to be okay, right? That, that's mm-hmm. where it ends up being highly problematic. And yes, I have seen, you know, independent of the more well-known breaches out there like Equifax, um, there mm-hmm. is a systemic industry problem where there is a disincentive to want to do these things with some implicit assumption that the likelihood, the probability is low until it happens, mm-hmm. right? And it's not a matter of, if it is a matter of when, in all reality. Yeah. I mean, with today's types of attacks, it's not like those attacks are going after specific entities anyway. I mean, they're 
going after whatever they find as vulnerable points on the internet uh, based on their tools they're using. So it's not like they're looking for a small or mid-sized organization. Oftentimes, uh, they're just looking right. for where's an unpatched system. Oh, here's one. Let's let's go after it. That's right. Um, That's right. Because you never know what you're going to find. And if you know, if I was a crook, that's what I do. I wouldn't. I'd just say let let's see what we have out here and go after every uh, vulnerable vulnerable server that we can find, regardless of what type of entity it is. So, so what are that's some right. of the biggest? Yeah. So, what are some of the biggest change control mistakes that you've seen? Uh, with cloud services for like their new applications and systems acquisitions? Because I know you've done a lot of of audits and you've done a lot of work helping cloud um, businesses. So what are some of the biggest mistakes you're seeing with them? So I would say the um, the, the biggest um, mistake or misfortune, um, depends on your, yeah. your viewpoint, right? Um, mm-hmm. It's really around not taking advantage of all that technological innovation that I mentioned earlier around CICD where you, you really invest in um, seeing how you can um, automate these things um, successfully. The other mistake is this, this lack of um, investment in educating um, the, the software development teams on good coding practices. Mm. Um, Ensuring that they have the right level of, of security training, OWASP top 10 training, making sure that information is fresh and, and, and right there kind of in their face all the time, continuously understanding and really encouraging that their careers and their credentialing within the organization is tied to security. Um, their performance management um, Critiquing is based on their their awareness of these things and their uh, willingness to maintain awareness of, of security as a as a fundamental um, practice uh, as part of their job. And I would say the other um, issue is they have not invested in some of the tooling that's made available. Um, that helps them augment maybe a lack of expertise in this area. And so those are probably the primary areas that I think could be uh, part of, you know, process improvements for these organizations to get them into a better state. Yes. Well, and so many cloud services actually contract their programmers. So that seems like that's another area where they would really want to make sure if they're contracting a group to uh, do the coding for them, that would definitely be one of the things they'd want to ask them about, um, you know, the capabilities for the the potential contracted entity to know, you know, what do you know about security and change control and, and what do your programmers do to address that, to make sure that you aren't creating unsecure software for us. Yeah, I, I think that's actually a big concern. Um, out, outsourced development is not uncommon, um, it, given the, the cost efficiencies. But, you know, you could kind of um, flip it and see it as an opportunity. Um, you know, that as these, these outsourcing 
developer companies, these firms um, go to market, they could actually, you know, provide a market differentiator by mm-hmm. implementing a lot of these core security practices as part of their business offering, right? And to give yeah. assurances for those that use those services, that that training is there, it, it's up to, you know, best, best in practice, industry practice, right? Best mm-hmm. in class. This is what we're selling you. We're not just selling you those that can write code. We're selling you that a level of expertise that that ensures and gives you more confidence that they have the core security-minded practices uh, understood. Um, they've got the training, they've got the tooling, all these things that, that really make them a, um, a go-to outsourcing company. But in addition to that, just as much as, much as I would expect an organization to train their own personnel to um, have all these policies and procedures in place for their their uh, entire development staff, um, that should really be translated into a the, the contractual arrangement with these outsourcing providers, mm-hmm. right? And if they offer this service, then it's a win-win, right? You both have the obligation legally bound <laughs> in that yeah. outsourcing agreement, but they offer it as a service anyway, so it, it doesn't become a negotiating point. It's just... Uh, um, you know, icing on the cake, if you will. Yes, yes. Get that into the the contract with the contracted entity, and uh, make sure that they they are obligated to do it. And you know, related to that is the testing. Uh, that's another thing that just really worries me. How I see, anyway, so many organizations do inadequate testing, like when. When they do changes in code, a lot of times I see um, and have had organizations test me, tell me, oh, well, we, we tested to see if the change worked. Um, but they didn't really do a full breadth of changes to see if, you know, things that might be unexpected input uh, would cause problems for that change as well. You know what I mean? I mean, they're just... They're just testing to see if their coding worked and not to see how it worked under unusual circumstances. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so if we if we go back to the, the backup um, yeah. issue that we talked about earlier, right, and then we take that analogy of the, the stacked set of puzzles, mm-hmm. right? The question is whether the test plan is testing the whole stack of puzzles um, all plugged together, or are they just testing a few of the puzzle pieces? Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the problem with a lot of these testing environments is they aren't real replications of the production environment, right? Mm-hmm. And you have don't really have a standard, um, industry standard around, you know, how many environments from dev I mean, if you kind of break it up, you've got your your prod and your non-prod, right? And then you could have variations based on maybe some some customer bespoke implementations or things. You could have variations of prod. And and a lot of organizations don't necessarily truly implement every version of prod that that might exist, which Mm -hmm. can be problematic because then when you introduce the, the, the change into a production environment, unless you've got that real, truly staged, replicated environment, your testing assumptions and and acceptance criteria 
may be insufficient. And so when mm-hmm. that change is implemented, you know, you end up with an outcome that was not originally intended, right? Again, that management yes. of expectation failed. And then it gets worse when you don't really have clearly defined back out procedures. Like you talked about the in the recipe where you add a little bit too much salt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you yeah. can't back out from that, right? Well, mm-hmm. unless you have some clearly outlined steps, you're in crisis mode at that point, right? You talk about, mm-hmm. you know, um, business continuity planning and disaster recovery planning has to be very specific because you're in a crisis scenario and you literally just need to be given a set of steps to follow without even thinking about it, right? And it's one, two, three. And unless those steps are clearly outlined in terms of implementing or redacting those changes, you may actually exacerbate the problem. Yes. Oh, that's such an important point. I'm so glad you made that. And not only having them clearly outlined, but tested prior to a a real-life situation, too, right? (laughs) That's right. Exactly. I've seen so many organizations who, you know, they write up a, a disaster recovery plan or a plan for backing out changes as part of their change controls, but then they never actually tested them. And then when a real life incident occurred, that's when they found out that what they wrote down didn't actually work. So then they were kind of messed up. Even worse. Um, And just another example of just the minute you assume yes, assume no, right? Yeah, exactly. So, well, what are some important, um, you know, critical tests that you think IT needs to do to make sure that their changes are not impacting applications users? I mean, we talked about the comprehensiveness, but are there any specific types of critical tests um, that should be done um, for basically all types of cloud services changes to make sure that there's no negative impacts or vulnerabilities left within the changed uh, application or system? Well, I think it really goes back to um, what, what kind of impact um, has been, or what's the analysis associated with the impact, right? Is, is the impact clearly understood um, and to which parties, right? Um, obviously, customer impact is a big one. Mm-hmm. So it, has there been some kind of risk analysis to understand what that impact is? And then what is your communication plan out to your customers to ensure they clearly understand. So as part of your, you know, your testing plan, right, your, your whether that's regression, um, acceptance testing, right, the plan near, clearly needs to outline um, to test against the impact that, that has been analyzed, fully understood, and communicated as part of that, um, the test procedure. Yes, yes. Well, believe it or not, we're already coming up here at the end of our hour. So for my last question, um, let's say I want to have you think about what you would want to have the key thing that our listeners should take away from this show today. So let's say maybe kind of like the the two-minute 
you know, executive opportunity in the elevator? What would be the key point that you would say to someone who's a listener if you ran into them in the elevator about what they should know about the importance of change controls or what they need to know about it in general? So I think for me, I I would say that, you know, the the same reason why I have both personally and professionally view change control as as a kind of a critical path for success as it pertains mm-hmm. to managing expectations, I would hope that translates well to, to those that are listening in so that they can take a step back and think, okay, in my life, what if, what if a change wasn't implemented? What kind of effect does that have on me, on my family, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and how can I then apply that in my work scenario, right? And what can I do to then further educate those that I work with that may be involved in these processes to say, hey, by the way, did you know that there are these things you can do, you know, such as what I mentioned around CICD and how can you use automation and tooling and technology to actually make this uh, more successful in in their job that ultimately may impact others uh, unknowingly. Yeah, definitely. And it might be worth mentioning, too, that um, we didn't really talk about it, but for those in the, the listening audience who are motivated by legal compliance, um, change control is something that's required by a, by a growing number of data protection laws and regulations, right? That's right, exactly. And, and it's, it's becoming more so a, a de facto uh, industry standard practice. Um, and you will find that for those regulations that may not have had them back in, you know, the early 2000s, I guarantee you all of the new ones do, including all yep. of the industry standards, generally speaking. Yes, yes. Well, thank you so much for uh, coming on and discussing this important topic that I think is not discussed enough uh, with me today, Becky. I sure appreciate it. It was my pleasure. Today, I've been speaking with Becky Swain about change control management in cloud services. Please send feedback about this show. Would you like to hear more about this topic? Let me know. And do you have a topic to suggest that I cover? Uh, Or do you have something else that concerns you that's related to information security, privacy, or compliance? You can contact me with questions and comments and all your ideas uh, using my email, RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com. Please tune into the show each month. If you can't make our scheduled live time, you will be able to listen to the recordings and you can find recordings of all of my past shows on iTunes, Mobile Play, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, and so on, any of those apps that you like. And also, of course, go to the voiceamerica.com business channel website. And feel free to get in touch with me for any other types of issues related to security and privacy. So until next month, I urge you to notice and stay aware of information security and privacy issues as you go about your daily activities and go to your job and do your daily work or encounter anything else that involves your personal information and how it's secured or used in ways that could impact your privacy. So ask those you do business with and those you work for if they're doing all they can to secure the information you've entrusted to them. Be privacy aware in the month ahead. Bye for now. 
Thank you for tuning in this week. Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live every Saturday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, stay safe.